0: Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck.
1: Thank you, Clyde, Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 344th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And joining me this morning as my co-host is author, educator, and consultant Deb Greider. Deb is a senior healthcare consultant at Karen Zupko and Associates. And Deb is sitting in this morning with Dr. Eric Reamer, who is on assignment. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Uh, Our lead story this morning is about the recent release of the AHA's third-quarter coding clinic. It's a topic I'm sure you're very familiar with.
2: It is. In fact, there are 45 different coding topics discussed 25 of which relate to diagnosis coding, and remaining are PCS scenarios
1: or questions. Good for you. Gloria Bryant is standing by to report our lead story this morning on the third quarter coding clinic. And speaking of coding, Lori Johnson is here to report on a very public health issue being faced by radio station personality Marty Griffin of KDKA News Radio in Pittsburgh.
2: Marty Griffin announced to his listening audience that he has cancer related to the human papillomavirus, or HPV. There is an ICD-10 code for this
1: virus. There is indeed, and the code, as I understand, from Lori Johnson, begins with a vaccine, as you probably know very well. Also on today's broadcast, Rhonda will report on a collaboration between certified coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists, a collaboration that had remarkable results.
2: Talk about the need for collaboration. Glenn Krause is here with the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report, a report he calls the query quagmire.
1: Indeed. We have much news to report this morning, and we'll be in with Dr. Dan Zerkman. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is
1: sponsored by
0: ICD Universities, inviting you to visit the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. Use the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD
3: University web store.
1: Here now is Dr. Dan Zirkman.
3: Thanks, Chuck. Having a carefully designed effective disaster plan protocol is critical for every hospital. But even the best laid plans, real-time conditions often expose unanticipated challenges. One month after Hurricane Florence at Carolina East Medical Center here in New Bern, as we return to normal function, our disaster planning committee continues to meet to review and analyze our responses. So what key lessons have we learned that we can use for future episodes? Well, we previously discussed the role of the On-Site Incident Command Group. The organization in charge of overseeing hospital operations during a crisis and its role in identifying problems and developing quick solutions in reviewing the process we realized that presenting every issue encountered during the critical storm days to the entire group resulted in long discussions at a time when quick answers were required our future solution newly identified issues not perceived to be a global system-wide problem will now be forwarded to the person on the group that is responsible for that particular system. This will allow for quicker responses to straightforward challenges while reserving group discussions for more complex issues. Second challenge involved dealing with exaggerated and even false information, which resulted in time wasted crafting solutions that ultimately were unnecessary or ineffective. Uh, Inaccurate information even reached organizations as high as FEMA that received incorrect word that our hospital had been evacuated. Solution, all information presented to the Incident Command Committee will now be clarified and validated. And in addition to temper the dissemination of inaccurate information through social media, we plan to utilize a Twitter feed that will function as a vetted source for hospital updates. Uh, Next, patients treated in the hospital were sent out with several days worth of medications, particularly antibiotics to hold them over until pharmacies open. Um, as a consequence of the volume of patients that we ended up seeing, we actually emptied our supplies, particularly certain antibiotics, which require challenging efforts to obtain additional stocks during the storm from outside areas. Our solution is we're going to evaluate our patient numbers and medication utilization and better quantify what our estimated in-house supplies should be for future crises. Staffing big challenge. 300 um, employees actually remained in the hospital for up to four days during storm conditions. With the mandatory evacuation before storm's landfall, many staff members actually complied and left the area but were unable to return due to the severe flooding. With the increased hospital census, that resulted in serious staffing issues that persisted several days after the storm. Solution? Solution? better advanced planning and staff education prior to the next anticipated events to ensure adequate coverage for shifts up to seven days. And finally, limited availability of designated community shelters resulted in many, quote, shelter seekers presenting to the hospital. We're addressing this challenge with local government agencies to look to increase future availability of safe facilities, particularly those with electric power for patients that will require uh, uh, medical needs such as oxygen concentrators. So the take-home message, by critically reviewing the unanticipated challenges, we plan to implement, mod- implement modifications that will improve our ability to respond to future crises. Back to you, Jeff.
1: Thanks, Dr. Zerkman. That was Dr. Dan Zerkman. Dr. Zerkman is the Chief Physician Advisor at the Carolina East Health System in New Bern, North Carolina. That's where he wrote out Hurricane Florence last month. It's Tuesday, it's October the 16th, 2018, and you're listening to the 344th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Trusted for more than 50 years, the American Medical Association drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA Store offers a full line of products to address CPT, XPICS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com.
1: Imagine a collaboration between coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists that generated a huge amount of money in just one year. So how much and how did they do it? Here now is Rhonda Buchholz with the rest of the story. Good morning, Rhonda. Good
4: morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. So this project was uh, near and dear to my heart as I work with our practices. Um, As you can imagine, being chief compliance officer, I'm always trying to temper any improvements that we do with also making sure that we stay compliant. And so this project, uh, we've been working with our clinics, and, and one in particular, we started doing the audits for them last year. Uh, we start out with quarterly. Once they get to 95%, of course, we take them to annual. But each audit, we do one-on-one education with the docs and their techs, uh, their scribes, anybody that actually is helping to touch that medical record. And we've built really good relationships with the, with the teams but when looking, it's always retroactive, and it's really hard to make improvements when you're talking about them a quarter later. So we started actually instituting a coding scrubbing program. And what we did to um, start this coding scrubbing program is we used certified coders, and we took a look at our audit results. Where were our highest risk areas? Um, we took a look at all, of course, our high volume, high ticket. All of our surgeries, our diagnostic testing, because of the documentation requirements that go along with those and ophthalmology and those types of things. And we started to code scrub for those. So we didn't scrub 100% of all claims. We tried to use our resources uh, most effectively. And as we would address and fix one problem, uh, we would notice another. And, and right, so the program is constantly fluid. And <clears throat> What we were actually able to do is to engage the physicians more. Um, We were actually able to provide better training, more tailored, specific to them, improve the CDI um, so that they actually understood and be able to tie it back meaningfully. Um, And it actually increased our audit results. We were actually able to take 34 doctors off. Um, This is a practice of 47. We were able to take 34 off of um, quarterly audits because of their, their results and put them on the annual results, but we still continue to provide the education, the training, and the collaboration, and in, in addition to the $2.5 million that we actually found just this year alone in the coding scrubbing with the audit and the compliance and the CDI improvements, um, we were actually able to change the entire culture of the practice, which was an amazing thing um, for us to, to be able to see. Uh, so it's not taken as just another administrative burden. It's not uh, a pushback from the physicians of, I don't want to do this. It's actual collaboration and working together as a, as a team. And that's what we found has been the most effective thing out of the program. It's really increased our compliance. Um, we've actually had better patient outcomes because we're driving that clinical documentation and, and we're making sure that we're capturing all of the meaningful um, parts. And all of our doctors um, bonused out on MIPS. And so it, the, the downstream effects of everything that we've been able to do, uh, just by starting that program and and showing the value of actually using certified coders in the process, has been amazing uh, to us a- along the the journey. We've actually increased the coding scrubbing program for 2019. Um, we're doing it with all of our clinics now, um, and it's we're we're just can't wait to see what all the results are. Back to you, Deb.
2: Thanks, Rhonda. That was Rhonda Buckholtz. Rhonda is the Chief Compliance Officer for Century Vision Global. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Deb, and thank you very much, Rhonda. You can read Rhonda's excellent reporting on this very subject on our website, icd10monitor.com. We continue our reporting on CDI, and today Glenn Cross reports on what he sees as a query quagmire.
5: Thank you, Chuck. Queries, as an integral part and makeup of clinical documentation integrity programs, has been the hallmark and foundation for CDI programs right from the start. The big question as a profession to really ask is, do queries serve as the most effective and reliable mechanism for improving clinical documentation? An even larger question to address is whether queries should be the mainstay of clinical documentation integrity efforts. Queries are a shallow means of improving documentation and the communication of patient care. I refer to shallow in the sense that short-term gain is in the form of diagnosis capture that may or may not be refuted by third-party payers. We are all too familiar with third-party payers' review and build cases with one MCC or CC or a specific principal diagnosis in the name of clinical validation. The end result is the impact of the query is negligible. What we are reporting as an increase in reimbursement and contribution to this case mix is not valid and reliable. I'm really concerned with the populist movement in CDI to acquire the latest and greatest software to enhance efficiency in chart review. Why am I concerned with this approach? For starters, the industry is drifting off course and overlooking the obvious query for diagnosis remains only one small part piece in the communication of patient care communication of patient care extends well beyond diagnosis reporting. We must not forget the patient and the physician in our quest to improve documentation integrity. We have forgotten the physician in the current mix of CDI, treating the query process as a means to an end of reimbursement with virtually no meaningful improvement and actually improving the quality and completeness of the record. Please refer to my article in today's ICD monitor for further discussion on quality and completeness. Let me share with you a more effective means of driving improvement in clinical documentation, an approach that truly captures and reports the clinical acuity of the patient. Uh, I've had personal experience in this model uh, in terms of clinical acuity of the patient, the severity of illness, reporting the reason for the hospital level of care, a plan of care rational and congruent with the assessment, the need for continuing... ...in the development of a reasonable discharge plan, etc., The underlying principle of CDI that should be a propelling force in chart review is to identify opportunities for enhancement in the quality and completeness of the documentation, beginning with the ED and progressing to the H&P. Our initial focus of CDI should be upon reviewing the H&P, seeking to ensure clinical acuity is captured in the history of present illness and chief complaint. Ensure a reasonable recording of the physical exam congruent with the physician's clinical judgment. Proceeding to the assessment and plan, ensuring that all relevant definitive diagnoses are recorded. A high-performing, well-designed CDI program breaks down barriers, works hand-in-hand with case management and utilization review. We should be educating and training case management and UR staff in the standards of documentation we are striving for from physicians. Through this collaborative collegial work process, documentation quality and completeness can be achieved. I'd like to leave you with this thought uh, regarding the query process. A recent class survey of CFOs, uh, uh, administrators, and CDI leaders presented in a report titled CDI 2018 Workflows and Prioritization, Drive Quality and Financial Outcomes. It revealed the following. Revenue improved for about 53% of surveyed. Approximately 38% of respondents also reported improved Workflow efficiency and 19% said reporting accuracy and metrics tracking improved. Here's the point I would like to to uh, take away and leave with. Fewer healthcare leaders and decision makers, however, are realizing financial gains in the form of increased acuity, only 18%, improved documentation quality, only 16%, fewer full-time equivalents, 3%, and reductions in pay denials was only 1% is very, very costly. So, the take-home message here is, while the query process is an important part of a CDI program, getting into the chart, partnering with physicians, case management, UR, and other stakeholders to affect real change in documentation is far superior than relying on the query process in an episodic manner to improve diagnosis capture one chart at a time. Back to you, Deb.
2: Thanks, Glenn. That was nationally recognized CDI expert Glenn Krause. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Deb. And, Glenn, thank you very much. You can read Glenn's reporting on the Quarry Quagmire in today's ICD-10 Monitoring News. And coming up at 60 minutes after the hour, a report about a radio's personality going public with his cancer fight, and then our lead story, the third quarter, Coding Clinic. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Backed by
0: popular demand, the American Health Information Management Association is collaborating with the American Medical Association to offer an interactive one-day outpatient clinical documentation improvement workshop. It's November 13th in Chicago. Participate in numerous hands-on case studies that illustrate the continuum of high-quality clinical documentation and ensuing high-quality coded data resulting in high-quality patient care and outcomes. Whether you are new to CDI, have started to develop a new outpatient CDI program, or are an old pro, this workshop, led by subject matter experts, has something for you. Register online at ahima.org slash cdioutpatient. Use registration code
1: AHIMA18CDI at checkout. Radio personality Marty Griffin of KDKA News Radio in Pittsburgh—it's the oldest commercial radio station in the U.S.—has gone public with a serious health issue. Here now is Laurie Johnson with that report.
6: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to our listening audience. Uh, yes, Marty Griffin is a radio personality at KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He announced in, in mid-August that he was diagnosed with a throat cancer related to HPV, human papilloma virus. Marty has a wife who is also an on-air personality on KDK-TV and three young children. His parents recently passed away due to cancer, so he was very concerned about the impact that this was going to have on his young family. When I wrote today's published article, Marty's voice was showing the side effects of his treatment. His treatment consists of chemotherapy, radiation, and immunotherapy. Last week he fainted and fell at home, due to the side effects of the treatment. He was admitted to ICU and received fluids to treat dehydration. According to his webpage, he will be off the air for a couple of weeks while he, uh, until he feels better. HPV-related cancers affect 80 million people. These cancers are 90% preventable with a vaccine. HPV is a very common virus that affects 80% of people, um, and that uh, 80% of people will contract that virus in their lifetime. The vaccine should be given to 11 to 12-year-olds in two doses. The virus affects women in that through vaginal intraepithelial neoplasia, also known as vein, V-A-I-N, and it has three grades. Vulvar intraepithelial neoplasia, V-I-N, um, is another form of cancer that affects women. The vaginal cancer has no symptoms while the vulvular cancer does, um, which may show sores, lumps, itching, burning, or bleeding. For men and women, the virus can show as genital warts. For men, the virus can result in cancer of the penis or anus. As Chuck stated, this condition can be prevented with a vaccine. The administration of vaccine is coded as Z, as a Zebra 23. In ICD 10 CM. If you read my article at ICD10Monitor.com, you will see all of the coding associated with HPV and HPV related cancers. Marty and his wife have a mission to cure his cancer and help others prevent its occurrence. They've started a website which is www.sparkt, which is S as in Sam, P as in Paul, A R K which can provide a video journal of his fight, as well as materials about HPV and HPV-related cancers. Early vaccination may be the cure. So back to you, Deb.
2: Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a Senior Healthcare Consultant with Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks Deb, very much. And Lori, thanks for a great story. And we, uh, you can read Lori's great story this morning on our homepage. Uh, this morning, our lead story is about the recently released third quarter coding clinic from the American Hospital Association reporting our lead story this morning. It's Lori Ann Bryant. Good morning, Lori Ann.
7: Good morning. Welcome everyone to the program. It's fall and changes in the air. We can probably all feel that. It's means that time for coding clinic to be issued again, third quarter, which was released last week. Great news. Coding professionals in all healthcare settings and even our CDI professional colleagues can benefit from the advice and direction of the AHA coding clinic. This publication is approved by the four cooperating parties, the American Hospital Association, the American Health Information Management Association, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the National Center for Health Statistics. Within this third quarter issue are many diagnosis scenarios and advice, as well as ICD-10-PCS, Procedure Coding System, scenarios and advice. So it hits both areas, keeping in mind that PCS was developed and is required in the inpatient hospital setting where diagnosis is for all settings. We do continue to see questions about the coding of diabetes and that can be uh, troubling. It focuses a lot around the coding of diabetes with associated conditions and in this particular issue they address the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus with arteriosclerotic peripheral artery disease and that diagnosis the appropriate code assignment that is advised is the E11.51 type 2 diabetes with diabetic peripheral angiopathy without gangrene and also a code i70.2 you'll have to look at the range atherosclerosis of the native arteries of the extremities that will be the way to fully capture this clinical diagnosis also regarding diabetes in this issue when a patient has a documented necrotic pressure ulcer of the heel with diabetic peripheral vascular disease and neuropathy and also has excisional debridement performed on that ulcer the question was around the sequencing of the diagnosis in this scenario and the guidance that's provided in the AHA coding clinic is to assign the gangrene the I-96 gangrene unspecified as the per- principal diagnosis this sequence device is based upon the instruction that is found at the code level for the pressure ulcer the L 89 code level, which says code first, that underlying disease, which is the gangrene. So that instruction is really important to, to review. Now, the pressure ulcer code of the L89623, pressure ulcer left heel stage 3, would be a secondary diagnosis. Certainly read over the full scope of this scenario in the coding clinic itself. And then there's one other diabetes discussion, and that's around the documented diagnosis of type 1.5 diabetic mellitus. And I've seen that diagnosis documented myself, I'm sure some of you have, and many have wondered about the official guidance around that. So this question was posed, and Coding Clinic tells us the correct code category is the E13 or other specified diabetes for type 1.5 diabetes or if there's a documented diagnosis of, quote, combination of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, end quote, and if you see that documented, again, you would use the category E13. And remember, these guidances are helpful for your inpatient coding and your outpatient coding as well, not just inpatient hospital. There are a series of cardiac procedure instructions and then some other procedure instructions for PCS. One that I'll bring up is the in- incision and drainage of a right neck tissue fascia, and they put in a Penrose drain. And the question is, do we code that separately? And the instruction is no, the Penrose drain is not coded separately, and to refer to the guideline B61B, the drainage of the right neck subcutaneous tissue and fascia code of 0J940ZZ would be assigned. I strongly recommend, strongly recommend to repeat that, certainly the coding clinic be reviewed and discussed with your staff at maybe a quarterly meeting. Even your physician office coding staff should have this publication and review it and read it. Guidance in this issue is effective with discharges and instructions September 24th. Read my article in the ICD-10 monitor and go through the full scope of this third quarter issue. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Lorianne, very much. That was Lorianne Bryant. And you can read Lorianne's excellent article on the third quarter. coding clinic for the American Hospital Association in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monetary News. There's an issue that's caught the attention of Deb Greider, clone documentation. So once again, here's Deb Greider.
2: This is not a new issue, but it's becoming even more concerning over the years. As I perform hundreds of documentation audits a year in various settings, such as hospitals, office, and other facilities, and it is really troubling to me the increasing amount of cloning still occurring in the electronic health record. It is often difficult to determine if the service was actually performed or was information just pulled in from a previous state and used to inflate the service. Cloning occurs with e and services in the office, in the hospital, and other settings, but it also occurs with procedures in the hospital and the office as well. I just completed a huge audit for a practice where a specific surgical procedure was the same for every patient, no change in documentation. And this is obviously cloning, which is something that we have to address as auditors when we perform internal audits. According to the OIG, inappropriate copy-pasting could facilitate attempts to inflate claims and duplicate or create fraudulent claims. Medicare contractors, as well as other payers, have noted increased occurrences of health records with identical documentation. And Medicare does define duplicate documentation as multiple entries in an individual's health record that are worded exactly alike or similar and they also recognize duplicate documentation that appears the same from patient to patient. And these terms are used such as cloning, copy-paste, copy-forward, macros, uh, save-the-note template as well as others. All practitioners need to understand it's not the quantity but the quality of the documentation that is important to tell the story of the patient encounter the procedure or service that was rendered. If you have inconsistent or ambiguous documentation, it can directly affect the coding and reporting, which may result in an accurate diagnosis code or present on admission assignment. And reporting of inaccurate codes may be misconstrued as fraud. And a pattern of inaccurate reporting, even without intent to defraud, could be considered abuse. IHEMA has an excellent toolkit that I think physicians need to read. It's called the Copy Functionality Toolkit. It provides excellent guidance in using the function in the electronic health record. And then lastly, from a medical legal perspective, inaccurate or complete documentation can be key in discovery for a savvy attorney in legal cases against a practitioner or facility. So in closing, I recommend all practitioners who use electronic health records review the documentation in the encounter you create. Make sure it paints the complete picture of the patient before you legally sign the note, which attests the information is true and accurate. Chuck?
1: Great. Thanks uh, very much. Excellent reporting. That's going to be a wrap for our 344th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Deb and I want to thank our panelists today, Rhonda Vocals, Gloria Ann, Brian, Laurie Johnson, Glenn Cross, and Dr. Dan Zerkman. And I want to thank Deb Greider with Karen Zuckerman Associates for sitting in this morning with Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk 10 Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Deb Greider and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.